So we've become really innovative. Um, and I, I work with some great teachers, um, absolutely fantastic teachers, far better teachers than I will ever be. Um, and I think it's their environment that's made them, they've, they've been forged into that. But there's a common thread, the great teachers continuously improve. Um, they're committed to it, nothing's ever perfect and they're always trying to improve things. But I think there's, there's a point where you've got to think, well, let's be pragmatic about it. You can't sort of change things overnight. You can't revolutionize a classroom, but you can just, like I say, I keep using this term baby steps and the risk of sounding like a broken record. I really mean it because baby steps are really the only way in a classroom. You, can, you can't disrupt something so much by making a huge change. You've got to make slow and gradual ones. Um, but always trying to improve things. And to be honest, work on two things. If you can functionally improve your delivery, i.e. make it more efficient, more cost effective, um, but you can also improve the learning experience, then whatever it is that, whatever it is that you are doing to innovate is, is defensible and, and works because you're improving your life, your quality of life in the classroom and you're improving that learning experience for your learners in the classroom as well. Um, Welcome to another episode. Today, I'm in the company of Steve Griggs. Steve is currently employed as the Regional Digital Learning Manager and Technologist of a division of the LTE group known as Novus. Novus facilitates education content in our prisons across England. Welcome, Steve. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Stacey. Thanks for having me. So I reckon we will have so much to talk about, Steve. Mm. So without further ado, shall we get started properly? Yeah. Okay. So would you like to share a bit about your background, Steve? How did you get started in the education sector, first and foremost? Um, I started um, working in the education sector itself um, quite some time ago. We uh, we moved down south as a family. My um, my wife was in the army, so she was stationed in Abingdon, and actually started working at a college called Abingdon and Whitney College um, in Oxfordshire. And um, I did a couple of years there while we were down south, and then we had to move up north. And I previously worked in prisons. I worked for Circom, so I was looking maybe to combine my work in education, and I was really enjoying working in education, but also that experience I had in the prison service. And I found a job with. Um, what was just the Manchester College at the time um, yeah. at um, a local site near me, HMP Moreland. And I started working there um, in the admin team um, and very quickly um, was sort of, sort of singled out a little bit by the manager there, although I, um, I, I'm grateful to this day for, for doing that to, to start a teacher training programme. Um, because I had, I had a business degree um, and I had some skills that she felt were, were useful in the classroom. So I started my teaching qualification whilst I was working there and did some some sessional cover. Um, and that's where it really started. I worked um, as a teacher, perhaps only for three or four years. Um, I, I moved from Mullins to Lindholm um, to get a full time position. Um, and I was teaching an, an acting team leader role. Um, for a short period of time to steer us um, through using the virtual campus a little bit better, getting online exams in place and things like that. And um, found I had a little bit of a talent for the virtual campus um, and was sent to Manchester to a, um, a, well, a, a meeting of like-minded individuals 
um, to look at the PEF bid um, for the new prison education framework. Um, from that, I suppose I was seconded into, into a role very similar to this one um, as kind of a learning technologist, a learning lead um, operationally for a pilot, but also then started working wider than that. Um, and eventually joining the national team, um, well, I'd say probably officially about six months ago. Um, but in reality, I've been doing it for about four years. And um, and so, yeah, I'm a digital learning manager for Novus now working nationally across all the prisons. Um, and my background, my subject specialism is business, but IT has always been a passion, something I'm really enthusiastic about, something I spend a lot of my personal time with technology. Um, so those skills, I suppose, have developed organically very well over the, the majority of my life. And um, that's sort of translated into a sort of a second specialism. And if not, it's now what I'm known for. Um, a bit of a, a digital guru um, in some people's eyes. I wouldn't use that word. Um, but someone who's, who's just really passionate about technology and passionate about helping others use it better. And yeah. um, that really serves me quite well in my my new role wonderful yeah so you you did have business as a background and then you moved over to it okay so you you recognized that you had a bit of a talent but when did when would you say that you fell in love with edtech do you think you could pinpoint that moment by any chance i think i could um Back um, when I first started working at Abney Whitney College, um, one of my roles was sort of a front-facing role with students, um, helping them access various services. And um, one of those services was a Moodle, um, mm-hmm. which was it was run through the library, um, oddly enough at the time. But it was supporting because um, we had a Moodle lead, but supporting her and supporting the students access that. And mm-hmm. I found Moodle just came very naturally to me. It really made sense um, yeah. in a lot of ways and. And I suppose that's kind of where I picked it up. And then I've always had an interest. Now, funnily enough, when I first started working in the prisons, we didn't really have anything like a Moodle. We had a, a, a learning management platform, but it wasn't like a Moodle. Um, it was more like a content repository, like the older fashioned sort of virtual um, campus, virtual college type um, technologies. And um, when I was invited to Manchester that day to have a look at what the future could bring, and we were looking at learning management systems such as Canvas, um, I just picked it up straight away and ran with it. It was something that, that really spoke volumes to me. And in the intervening period, I've been covering like IT and iMedia. So I've been sort of really working hard on those skills, um, particularly with Adobe, which is what something I wasn't all that familiar with. Yeah. Um, I'm brushing up on those, doing all sorts of qualifications and short courses and things as much as I could find online and just loved every minute of it. Um, and yeah, it expanded my collection of technology that I had at home and, and the amount of software that I had access to. This just this first for learning around it, um, what it could mean for ultimately my profession, but also what it could do for me in my personal life. Um, and you find that when you start working with technology and, and software platforms and things like that in that way, just things start to click together there's common threads amongst all technologies that you can just pick up on and now i've got to the point where i can literally pick up a new piece of software and probably learn it within a couple of days Mm. Um, and that's because i've got i think um, an organically developed good foundation um, of knowledge and skills but also i think for me and we talk about essential digital skills a lot and and for me i think the ultimate digital skill is to be able to self-develop new digital skills once you get to that point 
um, generally it's you can keep up with the pace of change um, and it's an important sort of ambition I think for any teacher at, at this moment in time to get to the point where they feel comfortable in self-teaching new software and new technologies so so you know I think in a roundabout way answers your question I'm sort of I've picked it up very early on in my career in, in education and just sort of run with it and I could say month on month I've learned something new from that point um, mm -hmm. to now where it's just it's kind of expected um, I think I have that expectation of myself that when something new comes along but also to the point where I'm also looking out in the environment in the marketplace for things that have potential um, for us as an organization but for education in general taking an interest in what other people like me are doing on Twitter and things that they're promoting checking those out so yeah very interesting absolutely and there's a few things that you said there that I just want to delve into a little bit deeper because you were saying really that you, you knew the moment that you fell in love with EdTech and that was through working with Moodle mm -hmm. and you, ex you, you expressed that it was slightly different to the LMS that you'd previously used as a repository. Now, I know so many teachers who do use Moodle still as a repository. So what were you doing differently with Moodle? Or could you explain just a brief overview of ideas that teachers could use Moodle as something more interactive as opposed to just a repository? Yeah, so there's nothing wrong with the idea of using Moodle as a container for content, but then you've there's a there's a whole aspect of Moodle that behind that. So a learner accesses your content, be it a video, be it a, a little assessment, a quiz, an assignment. Their interactions there are recorded, can be compared um, to others. We can really get insight from them. If we start to look a little bit deeper into that and start to think about well, the teaching bit you know, it's covered off, the learning bit is covered off. We know how that works with Moodle, but what about the assessment part? Mm -hmm. What are we assessing? And we look at that and we think, okay, well, we assess against the cross criteria. There might be a particular point to that little piece of content that I've put on Moodle. It might link to something else. How am I recording that where it matters, which is on the Moodle? And then you get to these ideas of like having custom rubrics where we're looking beyond the criteria. We start to look at soft skills. We start to look at employability skills. Um, we start to look at work readiness and things like that. A portfolio of information flowing around each learner, which helps inform our differentiation strategies, but also starts to show micro indicators of progress over and above that course criteria on skills that are just generally important for them. Now, this is crucial for so definitely for young people and certainly in my sector in, in the prison sector it's certainly so crucial that we we allow learners the opportunity to develop more than just against that criteria in the course mm -hmm. and Moodle helps us do that it almost automates that process what we do with that information is key but it should we should get be getting information or be using Moodle in a way where we're getting information out of it that it informs our strategies in the classroom, it informs what we we do with each individual. And if done properly, learning management systems help you differentiate right down to the individual level. Because I think gone are the days where we teach to the middle and differentiate to the top and bottom. We have to now think about each individual learner and their progress. If you look at your inspection frameworks around how we're indicating progress, what progress means now, 
then technology actually helps us overcome that challenge because I still think to many teachers that seems a bit daunting. Mm, absolutely. And so are you taking that approach within the prisons, that individual learning style? You know, are you encouraging your teachers and how are they sort of making that happen, Steve? They're working towards it. So there's mm-hmm. some really, really good work going on in um, in some of our lots. Um, now, the I'm not mentioning any names, I don't think that's fair, but um, no. I will say something called Eric, which we might hear about in future, where they're looking at um, what they're calling distance travelled, but really it's just about progress, and it's about progress against a multitude of factors. That's a really good early piece of work to help teachers understand how they can do that and utilise technology such as SharePoint to do so. Um, we're still trying to get our Moodle working. Um, that's that's one of the challenges that, of, of education and, and, and technology and education in prisons is that we have an awful lot of constraints to overcome and often we need to do things in a very bespoke and custom way. Mm-hmm. So our our Moodle is is in a good place, but we're still trying to get the uh, the grade book and the reporting and all that functioning. And that's all providers and HMPPS themselves working together on that. And we see that as, as really important. So we've had a really big hand as an organisation involved in the testing, um, but also steering a little bit about where this goes. And I think it's really important on that. It's that it's not just about what I'm doing as a digital learning technologist. It's it's about what our quality team is doing alongside me. It's about what teachers want. It's about our understanding of what HMPPS want as well. So that all comes in, in, into play. So we're very much sort of paving the way. And as you can tell, we, we already really have an ambition about what we want. We have a vision um, and what I've described there about this using technology this way. And I've seen it done that way, you see. So that's mm-hmm. the important thing is that I, I kind of know how that works and what, what it takes to be successful. But we've just got some challenges to overcome. So that's we're working towards it. Um, and every step of the way, any innovation that we can do in a joined up way, in a co-collaborative way with the teachers out there, because we're a large organisation, um, can only you know be better. And I think once we do are able to launch a Moodle in that way, I think it's then about taking baby steps because we've got a bit of a problem. Like Moodle can seem like a bit of a mountain to climb for, for anyone um, who's mm-hmm. first sort of starting to get used to it. Um, and what you realise is, I mean, I'd say you start with something like just using an activity once in a lesson, a Moodle activity once in a lesson, getting some data from that activity, just kind of understanding how that feels and how that works, um, dipping a toe, if you like, rather than jumping mm-hmm. in the deep end. And yeah. then we can start to build out lessons with it, maybe lessons to be done in a flipped sort of fashion. Um, yeah. It might be a blended learning component of a certain topic. Then we can generally work towards building out a whole component of our course with that learning management system. And depending on what you teach, that differs in, in its, um, its intensity. You can see IT and, and business courses being very heavily based on the learning management system. And something like English might only touch on it a little bit, but that's fine as long as that data is flowing through that. And I would always encourage people to use learning management systems for assessment, even if it's just formative. Because all that information that can flow through it and the rich data that we can get really does inform our strategies in the classroom. Yeah, I think that's really good advice, actually, just to sort of dip your toe in a little bit and then maybe build on that, even if it's just termly and then 
progressing from there. I used to love Moodle. Um, we've moved away from Moodle slightly. We're more about Teams and I incorporate OneNote into Teams as well for my students. I'm not really sure whether you'd have access to that in the prison, Steve. Would that be a barrier? Yeah, Teams wouldn't be able to um, to be deployed in the classroom. Um, I've I've spoken to others about how they're using it in, in, for learning um, and education, and how they're sort of putting together these team spaces for classes where it's it kind of encourages collaboration for me. It's not you're not sat in front of the computer as an individual. You're connected to all those other students, and I like that idea. Um, I've I've not seen a lot about the data that you can get out of Teams though, and I'd be curious about that. Would you say it's on on a similar level of analytics and reporting that you would get from a, a traditional learning management system? Such as Moodle, if I compare it to Moodle, yes, um, you can see they have an application called Insights. So Insights shows you when the students logged on and how they've interacted, but also you can set up assignments through the Teams platform and that you can build a Rubik's Cube. Uh, you can transfer that over to different courses if you need to. And so, yes, you can definitely get that data out of it and it, it sits there as well for however long you need to. Like I say, I use a lot of the OneNote as well as Microsoft Forms. And you can link OneNote and Microsoft Forms to the assignments in Teams. The reason why I might choose to use assignments is if that I want to put a deadline on it and if I want it to feel more like a, a summative assessment, even though it is formative. So it, th there are different ways that you can use the, the Microsoft suite to get what you would have done out of Moodle, which is, yeah, that, that's what we want. And you're right, it is so much more collaborative. I was teaching yesterday, Thursday's my teaching day, and I had a student who was working on his own on a, a word wall activity. And he did really well with that. Now, he was the last one to do that particular task. So I said, right, OK, brilliant. You take a picture for me and can you post it in our team's area? So now he shared his knowledge with the rest of the group. Now, the group's already had it, but it's there as a firm reminder. And it takes that onus off the teacher as well, because I've just got so much to be doing. And it's giving them that opportunity to interact and to build social skills and to know how to use the platform via his mobile phone, which, you know, will carry him on into the future. Um, so, yeah, it's just there's just different ways that you can you can use Teams and the Microsoft suite. I wanted to just go back a little bit as well, um, because you spoke about Adobe mm -hmm. and that you, you, you pretty much self-taught on that. You said you, you'd done some courses. So mm -hmm. are these courses still available and are they things that you would recommend for? And you are probably more than the average. I'm just going to say that because you pick it up quite easily. But do you think for teachers who are interested and have the time to, to go through such a training session, do you think that they, they too could maybe strive for where you've got to, Steve, with Adobe? Absolutely. Um, I've got an example, actually, but it just rests on the philosophy that if you want to learn about any piece of software or technology, the learning's already out there. And for, for, for the majority of cases, it's free or very low cost. 
Um, there's this idea in, in the IT industry and technology in general now, we're moving away from certified programs and studying more about open badging and things like that. Proving that you have the skills is more important than you know being able to write a CV with a load of qualifications on in, in a certain way. So adopting that philosophy of, well, how would an IT professional teach themselves um, to a point where they could you know, receive one of these open badges or they could, could receive like an industry certification. Um, and came across a few sources um, of, of sort of study, but one for learning particular software packages I find is, is Udemy, which I think stands for Universal Academy. It's been a while, around a while. Um, and I recommended it to a colleague in Yorkshire who was, um, was moving on to starting to teach Photoshop alongside um, Microsoft Office applications that she'd been teaching for quite some time. Um, and recommended the Udemy course, and I'm thinking, well, I know you, you probably like to learn this way. You can pretty much just sit down and learn all of the basics and then move on if you want to a more advanced course. And I think the cost of it all in total was about £60. Um, and I've learned how to use all the Adobe packages with, with, the, with a few exceptions of things I don't need to use. Um, mm -hmm. But generally the, um, the main ones, so Photoshop, Illustrator, um, InDesign and Dreamweaver, um, I, I jumped on Udemy courses and then from those I built out projects, just little self-made projects that, you know, just to try out these new skills that I'd got and I found that's working where up until the point where it started actually, I started utilising those skills in my work um, and then obviously it becomes a, a different kind of development, you develop into what the organisation needs you to do in your role. So I would completely recommend that, but you don't like I've paid a few quid for some courses. You don't have to do that. You can, as long as you know what, you know, what all these little waypoints are along your learning journey with that piece of software, um, you can jump on YouTube and find out how to do all of it. Um, where someone's showing you them doing it themselves on their screen. It's like being taught with someone side by side with you. You're just following their instructions. Um, but I think it's really important, like I've come across some Udemy courses where they're just teaching you what all the functions of the software do, but there's no real project involved. And I think it's really important for someone who's self-teaching themselves software to have like a specific project outcome in mind. So say you're learning Dreamweaver, it might be to build your own, your first website. And that's really important to have that because you can learn about the functions, but unless you're applying it practically, it's really difficult to, to retain that knowledge. Yeah. And then it's easy to forget things. It's easy to lose some of those things. So knowing how to remind yourself or look things up or great sources of sort of how to guides and things like that. And most software companies now have their own sort of libraries of um, tutorials and guidance and things that's really useful. And I know Adobe and Microsoft certainly do. We've just had them whitelisted so um, learners can access them in prisons. Um, and that could be really, really influential because we're empowering learners to also self-teach, to work towards that ideal level for me of essential digital skill where you can just self-develop. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose those particular platforms that you've chosen as well, it's going to be around for quite some time. So they'll help out for when your when your students say come on the outside and they're applying for a job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And we're starting to notice, I think, definitely learners now are expected to have Microsoft Office skills. And it's desirable if they have some more software skills on top of that. I've seen a lot of sort of job postings um which we've been looking at sort of like 
jobs where technology and digital skills play a small part, but they're not main, the main part of the role. And even seeing things like video editing alongside customer service roles, it's kind of like bleeding in and there's some blurred lines now. And I remember quite a while ago now, someone told me that in you know the next 30 years, we can't imagine the sort of job roles that are going to occur that are going to come about because they've never existed before. And I think yeah. with the onset of sort of hybrid working, I think it's been the phrase is being coined. I think we're starting to see that a little bit where people's roles and work starting to change and technology is becoming extremely important. COVID just accelerated that process a little, I think. But generally speaking, I think now it, the expectation will be that when you go into a role, you have the opportunity to utilize technology in that role and you should have the skills to be able to learn new technological skills as well or new digital skills. Yeah, it's so true what you're saying. It's a slightly different genre of jobs, different trade. But I remember being at school and thinking, what what did I want to be and what did I want to do? And, you know, you do have all these different skills, but then I never ever foresee someone getting paid to put people's makeup on <laughs> like literally that is a big business you know yeah. and no way did I think people would pay between 30 and 60 pounds to have the makeup being applied to their face and then they go home and wash it off each night there is no way to predict what will be in the future and my children my son he's going to go to university this year well next academic year and my daughter's going to start college next academic year and I just keep saying to them you know it's not about thinking about what job you're going for just do the things that you enjoy because before you know it they will be applied to some form of job mm. <laughs> you know it really it really is that case and so for you you've sort of like pursued that thirst for knowledge in technology and that's brought you to this place and and you know that's that's I know it's ideal and I'm, I'm very much an idealist but it is the way that it should be isn't it you choose something that you're interested in and you chase that and you get employed and you get paid for doing that yeah I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that everyone can continuously improve their skill set their practice firm believer in that the only variable is time some mm -hmm. people have different levels of constraints. They have different classrooms, different working teams um, and different starting points. So the, the, the only variable for me there is time. Um, doing nothing for me is unforgivable. Um, it really is. And, and I think education's a great place for people who like to continuously improve things, continuously improve themselves, but also their practice. That, that's key to it's at the heart of teaching because both technology and, and teaching as a profession have this one thing in common. The, the, they're always changing. They're, they're in mm -hmm. constant flux. I mean, we know as teachers, the expectations are always changing. The goalposts are always moving. Um, and sometimes, you know, they move further away. Sometimes they come closer to something that we were doing years ago. Um, and, and we have to adapt and we have to change constantly. And that's all about that process is the more you sort of continually improve the way you do things is, is the easier you can adapt. Um, and we often complain, I think, about being in sort of pressured situations, challenging situations, but it's those sorts of environments that breed innovation as well. Um, mm. and, and we see a lot of really nice things come out of those situations. 
I'm blessed, I think, to work in, in the prison education sector. It is a challenging place to be a teacher and, and to be an educator, but I've worked with so many innovative people that I've had to found, find really random ways around problems because the normal solution doesn't work. Mm. And for a variety of reasons, because of security, because of public protection, because of where, uh, you know, the nature of our students and, and their challenges and the pressure that they're under. So we've become really innovative. Um, and I, I work with some great teachers, um, absolutely fantastic teachers, far better teachers than I will ever be. Um, and I think it's their environment that's made them, the f they've been forged into that. But there's a common thread. The great teachers continuously improve. Um, they're committed to it. Nothing's ever perfect and they're always trying to improve things. But I think there's there's a point where you've got to think, well, let's be pragmatic about it. You can't sort of change things overnight. You can't revolutionise a classroom, but you can just, like I say, I keep using this term baby steps. And the risk of sounding like a broken record, I really mean it, because baby steps are really the only way in a classroom. You, can, you can't disrupt something so much by making a huge change. You've got to make slow and gradual ones. Um, but always trying to improve things. And to be honest, work on two things. If you can functionally improve your delivery, i.e. make it more efficient, more cost effective, um, but you can also improve the learning experience, then whatever it is that, whatever it is that you are doing to innovate is, is defensible and, and works because you're improving your life, your quality of life in the classroom, you're improving that learning experience for your learners in the classroom as well. Um, and we don't need any sort of real fancy models or anything like that to justify what we're doing, although it helps. And I remember talking to you about Samer a while ago, and um, I know that's changing as well. People's perceptions of that's changing, but, you know, generally just, just improve those two things. Make what you're doing more efficient or more high quality and improve the learning experience, and it's worth doing. And a lot of that can be sort of on the back of technology. If you think about when we moved away from flip charts and, and sort of conventional whiteboards to like things like clever touch displays and what's actually possible with them, just just embracing that new technology and learning some new skills. You find that a lot of the skills are the same. You're still thinking like a teacher, you're just applying it in a slightly different way. And Absolutely. what that actually does for the learners is incredible. Um, because if you can improve engagement, and that's often where those things come in, then you're making it more possible for them to enjoy their experience, but also to remember what's being taught to them um, if they're more engaged. So the, things like that can make have a huge impact. Just dropping something in like, um, you know, a quick links lesson where you've got some slides together and you're dis discussing a new topic in an interactive way and the learners are collaborating with you around this board much better um, then, you know, perhaps what you did before where you give them a worksheet and an, an exercise to do in pairs or something like that. Um, and you start to move into sort of like a very flexible way of delivery, but you're still focusing on the same things. Um, and it's, I think it's adaptable then because you're already appreciating that lesson to lesson. I'm kind of changing them on the go. I'm thinking on my feet and reflecting in action and on action. Um, and, and, you know, again, I think the, the really good teachers do that. And the really good teachers for me get where technology is great, but also understand where it can be also a bit of a problem. Um, and mm -hmm. they prepare for it being a bit of a problem. We've all been in those lesson states where it's let us down. <laughs> Websites, you know, things like that. So it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's very practical if you think about it. We think of um, as technologists as being a bit geeky, actually we end up being very practical.
Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's definitely about making life easier for ourselves and our students. We have a really hot topic internally about helping students become savvy or proficient users of technology technological devices so improving or building on their digital capabilities to truly arm them for the world of work in the 21st century which is really what you're saying here Steve but for me personally it has been a challenge the access to devices to even facilitate such skills is a real barrier and that's outside of the prisons you know I can't imagine what it's been like in the prisons I wondered could you could you enlighten me because you've given me some ideas but I'm just wondering so do they what what is the role of edtech in prison education and do you look to improve the digital proficiency of your prison pupils and do they have access to all the tools to help them to be able to achieve those outcomes yeah, absolutely. And and I think even even nowadays, if you spoke to someone who's worked in prison education or has had, you know, had an eye on it in any way, shape or form, they might tell you these awful stories about antiquated equipment and, you know, lack of access and no internet and things like that. And learners just doing things on pen and paper all the time. And in in some ways that that's that's been true in the past i think we've we've certainly started to really achieve some things with PEF. so a huge refresh of all the technology in prison education classrooms has been a major step with um and and our own lte group um it team has just completed a massive project and an incredible amount of work gone into it and effort gone into it to refresh all the equipment in so many sites to being up to standard with what you'd find in the modern workplace or classroom. And that's important in itself because you don't want your learners using technology that's already out of date once they've finished the course. Yeah. So you need you need a platform that can change as well, and that's what they've achieved. So that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, what we've managed to do with the virtual campus, in particular whitelisted sites, making things like learning on screen, class flow, um go conquer and things like that sort of commonplace in the classroom huge step forward um and this all started with PEF and now where we're moving towards having a fully functioning learning management system that's custom and bespoke to our needs so uh, you know I'd argue with those people now I'd say yeah true in the past but I'd argue with you now it's not that bad anymore but access to technology is still a challenge um Mm. there's only a limited amount of devices on each site allowed um, only so many have licenses to connect to this virtual campus network um, and that's a challenge we're all committed to working on and often you'll hear people start to talk about in-cell learning technology um, people having access to sort of learning outside of the classroom environment in a prison where they can start to do things in cell or on the wing and that's a really important step to start taking and they're already piloting things so it, it's really important that we're aware that, yes, there are challenges, but we are continuously improving and moving forwards with it. It's only a matter of time, I think, in some ways, we've, where we start to become the leading light in some ways, um, because we are so, so committed to it. It's not something that we see as a nice to have. It's an absolute must have. Mm. And digital skills are so important for our learners. You think about, you know, look at that consumer digital skills index that Lloyds do every year, and you can see the difference now between someone who has what we'd call the essential digital skills and someone who doesn't those people with digital skills are more employable which is crucial for rehabilitation they're generally 
better supported, better connected to their networks, have a better sense of well-being. Again, absolutely crucial for okay. rehabilitation. So again, for our learners, it's an essential thing to do. And we are now trying to put in a novel solution to make essential digital skills, um, qualifications a possibility and working hard towards that. That's all providers in HMPPS working together. So it's, it is, yeah, it's, it gets there. It's just, there are, there are so many challenges, but it's people like myself and my colleagues and my counterparts in the other organizations. That's our job to work our way through these problems, to find ways to pioneer a little bit and find that first path. Um, and I will say this, just touching on that point you said about it's so important making sure that learners are developing digital skills alongside their existing studies and, and things that they're focusing on. Because you, me and you will see it as a third functional skill. It's just as important as English and maths. Mm-hmm. Um, and it should be embedded in, in as much as you do. And I was talking with the ETF a while ago, and I think I ended up submitting some sort of blog post for this, but I was talking about changing the medium for learning. Um, so sometimes we'll do an assignment and it'll be a conventional assignment. There'll be a pen and paper. There'll be an interview. We might even record it. Um, but if we can change the medium of that assignment, so let's just say there's a handwritten essay. And actually, we start to encourage learners to, to hand type that essay, to use a word processor to put that essay together. And we, we just do that from now on. That's it. No more handwriting these things. We want you to do them um, with using a word processor. They will organically develop word processing skills as a result of doing that assessment. Mm-hmm. And you, you can see how this factors in. So start to use PowerPoint to deliver presentations. Um, on things that you're doing, if it's like a show and tell type activity, or if you're exploring something, let's use PowerPoint and let's explore it this way. They will develop presentation skills, speaking and listening skills, you know, professional and and, and valuable employability skills, but also how to use PowerPoint. Um, And it's kind of like, and and all that interfacing and all those common formatting features and laying out the graphics and making, making that as effective as it could be, all really valuable digital skills. Um, research and using the internet is so valuable as long as you make them aware of the pitfalls, make them aware of things like reliability and validity, the source of the information being really important. Give them the opportunity to do that, change the medium, and they will organically develop digital skills because most technologists can turn around and say, well, I'm not actually a computer science expert. I'm not, I've not got many formal qualifications in IT. I'm just someone who's used it an awful lot. Yeah. develop those skills organically that's certainly true for me i'm guessing it's true for you stacy absolutely um, most of the most of sort of like-minded people in my organization are all the same um so change the medium and and the learning's still the same but they will pick up new skills along the way yeah. agreed i mean you've literally read my mind Steve. it was what i was going to go on to talk about so i I feel like what you've mentioned there is linking to the ABC learning design, which I know we're both fond of. That's that's where we sort of like cross paths initially on the mm. Dr. Jean McNiff's program. Um, yep. And so, yeah, it's 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 about that sequence of learning activities for the specific outcomes and deciding whether we want a conventional tool or a digital tool. And I think since we've had COVID, really, a lot of teachers have learned how to use digital tools and now really they need to think or we want them to really think okay so this is what we had to do when we were forced to do it we needed to use that digital tool do we need to do that
that now or would it be better a different way? So, for example, you and I are having this conversation over Teams. If we were in the same building, I'd come and find you. I wouldn't necessarily want to do it over Teams. But if we are, like you say, doing work on a Word document, we might as well collaborate via the digital tool And like you say, it's going to be organic and they'll have those skills to be able to take it elsewhere if needs be. So, yeah, I I completely agree with you on all of what you've just said, really. I guess we are coming to time. But Steve, I just wanted to ask you, is there anything on the horizon that you are expected um, or super excited about that you might be able to share with us? Because you sort of alluded to something earlier And I don't necessarily want to probe because it might not be something that you can elaborate on. But is there anything that you could? Yeah, well, certainly in in the prison education context, I'm really excited um, about getting this Moodle going um, and what that could mean. Um, And I think that's the first step along the way of of moving towards, um, I don't know, a, a more flexible and adaptable range of tools around education provision in prisons including the potential for in-cell learning so if you've got a moodle that is connected to the classroom but is also connected to whatever devices or technology are enabling learning outside that classroom then we can start to talk about things like flip learning which would really really benefit i think prison education teaching in prisons is is a strange thing because Learning stops the moment your guys leave or guys or ladies leave the classroom. That's mm. generally true. Um, you can send them away with work, but there's no guarantee it's going to come back and it's not going to an environment that's conducive for learning normally. But learners within prisons um, spend a lot of, I think, unconstructive time on the wing and in cells. Um, and I think that they would actually be really, really open to having something constructive to do in that time Mm. and then we could start to really open up the the possibilities so distance learning for example something that they could do outside of their traditional classrooms and things like that they could pursue interests as well for enrichment but they could also start working in this flipped way i think that's something i'm really excited about but for me for that to happen we need a learning management system so the vast majority of my effort and focus is going to be on helping make sure that works um, and it's um, it's not easy to make it work in prisons. It's um, we have all sorts of challenges we need to overcome that you wouldn't normally experience in, say, a college. Um, mm. And colleges have their own unique challenges, but we have generally have technological barriers. Um, so we have to figure that out. Um, but once we once we do, once we get it working and people can adopt it, then I'm sure that will pave the way for some options in future to further innovate um, in prison education. Brilliant. And I'm sure that will happen. Just before I let you go, I just want because you you've said to us about the barriers and you've you've sort of alluded to being whitelisted. Now, I understand what that means, but our listeners may not. Could you just explain just a little bit about that and then it puts everything in context? That'd be great. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So um, obviously um, access to the Internet in prisons is something that's strictly controlled. Um, now, it is technically possible for a learner in a classroom to jump on our, our, our system and access certain websites that have been allowed. And we do that through what we call a whitelist. The best way of describing a whitelist for me is it's like a bouncer on the door. 
and on 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 the um, on the on the door they've got a list of names and you know in this case it's a list of websites and if you're on the list you're allowed in you're allowed through mm-hmm. if you're not on the list you're not um, mm-hmm. and it differs from say category based where they look at categories of websites and categories of content and stop certain things come from coming through a whitelist is very very strong in that it'll only let certain certain urls through and even right down to certain sub subdomains or sub subdomains if you like um will only be allowed through so for example the microsoft um website that we've the microsoft guidance and support website that we've just had whitelisted it's only actually the support part that is whitelisted the the, right. the main microsoft website which is the main domain to that part isn't whitelisted so it'll only let the subdomain through not the main site and that's kind of how that works for me i always tell people it's like a bouncer if the url is not on the list it won't let it through yeah it's a great analogy and it makes sense it's really easy to understand that okay so thank you so much for coming on my podcast today steve not only have you uh you've you've provided an insight into the prison education but I think also using your voice to amplify the approaches that are being used to drive learning forward for the society as a whole. It's massive. Mm-hmm. So a really important provision to support second chance, I would say. Yeah. I hope you've actually enjoyed this experience, Steve. I have. It's my first podcast. So um, it's definitely a box ticked. Um, but really it's been a genuine pleasure just talking with you, Stacey, and hope the listeners get something out of this conversation, um, some insight into what we're doing, at least. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to EdTech Joy with Stacey Foy. All music and song was written by Alistair Rain. Our fabulous singer is our music student, Lily Hartley. Rick Longdon is on the piano and Rosie Fortune is our producer. Catch us next time on EdTech Joy with Stacey Foy.